John chapter 6, while the children are dismissed, go back. I'm so grateful that we have those that will teach our young people, uh, keep the distractions in our auditorium at a minimum as we want to hear the Word of God go through clearly. John chapter 6, <clears throat> what is the worst storm that you've ever been in? Tor tornado or hurricane or, I don't know, last week here in South Dakota, what? <laughs> What's the worst storm that you've ever seen? I've never been in a hurricane or a tornado, although I've had several close calls. Maybe you have been. But I've seen the aftermath of some of those bad storms, and it's an amazing thing. Uh, the Galveston hurricane, the great storm of 1900, uh, is the deadliest national disaster in U.S. history. Uh, I've, uh, the hurricane left between 6,000 and 12 thousand people dead. Hurricane Andrew, Category 5 hurricane in August of 1992, was the most destructive hurricane that Florida had ever seen. There was Hurricane Katrina, Category 5 hurricane, 1,800 deaths in August 2005, caused $125 billion worth of damage. There was 2004 Hurricane Ivan, but I don't want to go into that. I don't want to besmirch a good name. Amen? We'll just leave it at that. That gentle Hurricane Ivan. Uh, my, one of our friends back in about a little after that, one of our friends made t-shirts and he gave my wife a t-shirt that said, I survived Hurricane Ivan. Uh, she hasn't yet, but uh, she's in the middle of that. But storms are a frightening thing. But storms can also be applied to struggles in our life. We see that throughout the Bible and sometimes we refer to uh, times that we're going through the, as a storm. And I would say that today, politically, we're in a storm. Culturally, I believe we're in a storm. Some problems that face our nation, some problems that God's people will face, no doubt in the next few decades that if the Lord tarries, that, uh, that, that we could consider storms. It seems often as if evil is winning, freedoms are being destroyed, and maybe you in your personal life are going through a storm. It may be financial or a loss of a loved one or family problems or whatever the case might be, and certainly we've all been there. Certainly we'll all be there again. Storms. How should a Christian look at storms? I want to read a passage today. I think it'll help us to understand how Jesus handled it and teaches us as well. John chapter 6, verse number 16, the Bible says, And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea, and entered into his ship, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they saw Jesus walking on the sea walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. And he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. I want to preach today for a few minutes on smile at the storm. Smile at the storm. Father, I pray you'd help us here in this time we have. We would see clearly what you have for us from your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Christianity is not a doing religion, it is a done religion, and so Christianity is not 
about doing. Religion is doing, but Christianity is about being. And consequently, Christianity is also about, is a way of seeing. You see, the Bible doesn't give you truths just for you to look at them. There are lots of intellectual, highbrow religions that will give you doctrinal truths to look at. But the Bible gives you truths that not only do you believe those truths, but it changes your entire worldview. So you don't just look at them. You look at everything through the truths of the Word of God. It's like these glasses that I'm wearing. I started wearing glasses a few years ago because I'm getting older. That's what happens, isn't it? But don't laugh. You're getting older too. Who's older here than they used to be, right? I think that's all of us, pretty much. A young boy looked at his grandfather, or went to a, his grandfather's birthday party, and, and uh, during the time they were together there, he asked, he said, Grandpa, how old are you? Grandpa said, I'm 70 years old. And he just, mouth agape, looks at him in amazement, and he says, did you start at one? Uh, we all started at one. We're all getting older. But it's like these glasses, without them, when I look down here, the words on the page is blurry, but when I put these on, it brings them into focus. And not only do we have to look at the truth of the Bible, we have to look at the world through the truth of the Bible, and it'll bring our life into focus in many areas. And so that's the difference between formal religion and Christianity. This is not a, a ritual. This is real. This will change your life. The truth of the Bible will change your life, and it'll never be the same. Now, how in the world can we smile at a storm? I want to look at several things today, just three things for us to consider out of this story. Jesus is holy, Jesus is powerful, and Jesus wants to be your captain. We'll look at those three things, and I think they'll help us. But we see, first of all here, that he is holy. And I find something interesting in this text. If you look, <coughs> the Bible says that they see Jesus walking on the sea, and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they are afraid. Now, the word afraid uh, is, it goes a little deeper than what we see it there, just simply afraid. It means to be struck with fear, to be seized with alarm, to be terrified. That's what the original word here for afraid means. I want to notice here that the disciples were not terrified until Jesus showed up. Now, it doesn't say anywhere they were afraid or terrified of the storm. Now, I'm sure they were concerned. In fact, we know from parallel accounts that Jesus saw them toiling uh, on that ship. They were trying to get it under control. They were having a hard time. They were probably worried, anxious, apprehensive, but there's no record of them being terrified until Jesus shows up. Now, why is this? Well, put yourself in their place. When he shows up, he's walking on the water. Okay, just think about that. If you're out in the dark, and you're trying to get this ship under control, and it's storming, and you see a person walking on the water towards you, I think all of us would be scared. I think all of us would be terrified as they were. When he walks on the water, he is showing them that he is from somewhere else. He's not one of them. They're in the presence of something unequivocally above them. Uh, they are in the presence of the supernatural. And so they react in terror because that is the natural human response to anything supernatural. Now, what does Jesus do when he shows up? He says these words in the Bible. It says, it is I, 
be not afraid. Now, if you dip into the original language, again, sometimes that helps us a little bit because of our uh, different wording that we have. It's translated this way in our Bible because it makes sense in the English grammar. But the original literally says, do not fear, I am. Now, there's another time in the Bible that somebody had those words told to him. Moses heard a voice coming out of the burning bush in fear. He hid his face. God said, uh, to, for Moses, you're on holy ground. Take off your shoes. Uh, he told him to go to Pharaoh. He said, you're going to be the deliverer of the children of Israel. And Moses said, uh, amongst other things, when he's talking to God, whom shall I say sent me? Remember what God said? Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now what does I am mean? Why would God call himself I am? Well, we could delve into that, and I'm not going to make this whole message a study about that, but essentially I'm not like anything you've ever seen. I am. I have no beginning. I have no ending. You cannot say I was. Uh, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I cannot change. You cannot say, I will be. Uh, I am the unique God. I am self-sufficient. I am the Holy One. I am. When Moses grasped the holiness of God, it changed his life. Now, here are the disciples. Jesus says, I am. They're terrified. Why? Because he's revealing himself as the Holy One, as the Son of God himself. Listen, this isn't just a good man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He is the great I am. And they're recognizing that as they see what he can do. The disciples' response, it's not peculiar. It's not that odd because when anyone gets into the presence of the supernatural, they have a mixed reaction. You could call it an attraction-repulsion reaction. Uh, we, we see it all the time, even in church. On one hand, there's an attraction. On the other hand, there's repulsion. Uh, the, on one hand, they're uh, captivated. On the other hand, they're terrified. The Bible gives us other examples of this throughout the Scriptures. You have Isaiah. He wants to see God. And at the same time, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. There's Peter. In Luke chapter 5, we find he had been fishing all night long. Uh, they, they had no, they caught no fish. It's like when I go fishing, <laughs> caught no fish. And so that was them. They had fished all night long, got nothing. Jesus shows up the next morning. He asks Simon Peter to go out on his boat, and he uses his boat as a pulpit, and he preaches to the people uh, from the boat. And then when he is done, he says to Simon, launch your nets out into the deep for a drought. Now, fishing was done for. It was time to go home and go to bed. The nets had been cleaned. And Peter did not want to do it, but he did anyway because of who Jesus was. And then when he did, the Bible says they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. Peter came face to face with supernatural power. What did Peter do? What did he say? What do you think a fisherman would say to someone like that, a boat full of fish? Jesus, this is great. I won't have to fish for a month. You can come fishing with me anytime. That's not what Peter said. You know what he said? Depart from me, for I'm a simple man. Attraction, repulsion. He didn't see the fish. He's experiencing what Rudolf Otto calls numinous awe. He's in the presence of the holy, and his response, attraction, 
and repulsion at the same time. Now, maybe we can best explain it this way as well. The Bible teaches us, as you read the book of Genesis, the first few chapters, that there are two layers to our soul, if you will. The first layer was laid down by God. He created us in his image. Uh, He made man to fellowship with him and commune with his creator. The Bible says that God would walk out and commune with man, walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. You were created to desire him like a moth is drawn to light. We long for, we yearn for the face of God at the very core of our being. That is why you can go to the most remote villages and tribes of the world, and they all worship something. They have a God. They have something that they bow down to because in the core of our hearts, we yearn for the face of God. Now, they, after that is in place, we then added another layer. We laid this one down. We took advantage of the fact that God created us with a free will, so we decide to live independently of God. Uh, we decide to live for ourselves. Because of that choice, uh, there is a part of us that resists the holy. I see it all the time in church as you bring Christians, whether they're new Christians or people just starting to come to church, they, they come and they, they're attracted and yet they're repulsed. It's, it's you want to be there and yet there's a part of you that doesn't want that. You see, we decided at one point, Adam did, and then or Eve, and, and then Adam followed her uh, suit with her when they uh, sinned against God, that we were going to be our own creators. We're going to be our own gods. Uh, modern theology and ideology says create your own reality. You can be whatever you want to be. Modern thought just confirms what the Bible says that we're driven by. I want to be my own God. I want to be in control. So when we get in the presence of the real thing, God himself is terrifying, which is exactly what happened with the disciples. We sense our weakness. We sense our own uh, dependence. We, it refutes all that of the second layer that we put down. It shows us our inability to really be in control of anything, and it's no surprise the disciples were terrified. Our life is a constant battle between those two layers You can't live without God, and yet many find it hard to live with God. Why do you think there's so many people that wrestle with this? On one hand, they seek after God, and then they kind of resist him when he gets too close. You see, we like to have God in our life, but we don't really want him to have us. Not all the way. You know, I'll just dabble. We have a lot of people that dabble. Dabblers, I call them. I don't even know if that's a real word, but but I made it up, so now it is. Amen. Dabblers. A lot of people dabble. It's like the, the gym. I'm a dabbler when it comes to the gym. Okay? I'm not hardcore enough to where it makes much of a difference, as you can see. Uh, I just like to dabble a little bit and uh, uh, run a little bit and work out a little bit. Uh, it's not enough to where it's making an impact in my life. People do that with God. They dabble. They want a little bit, but not a, I want him, but at the same time, I want to keep control of my life. And friends, you can't have both. And one of the things storms do is they show you that, as we'll see in a minute here. You need the love of a holy God. Uh, any, and by the way, any real love is holy love. One who demands your perfection. 
one who demands your purity, one who sees, wants to see you grow, who wants to see you change. If you have somebody in your life and you have love that says, do whatever you want to do, I just want you to be happy as you are. I don't ever want to upset you. That's not love, that's codependency. Raise a child like that. I just, we just love them. We just, you know, you let them do whatever they want to do, we just show our love. I've heard that phrase and believe it with all my heart, give a pig and a boy everything they want, you'll have a good pig and a bad boy. Amen? Somewhere along the line, you've got to step in the way. Somewhere along the line, you have to have some expectations. And real love does that. Real love has those expectations. Real love confronts. And you need, my friend, a holy love in your boat. You need a God who's holy. You'll need a God who will confront, who will say things have to change, that has these expectations for you. And that's why people hesitate to have God in their boat. Uh, people want him, but at the same time, they want to maintain control of their own life. It's why people get mad at the preacher when he preaches the word of God. I've never figured this out. But uh, somebody will proclaim the word of God and people get mad at him. Why? I don't mind dabbling. Just don't tell me how to live my life. And we can't have that because Jesus is holy. And he is showing that here. Uh, I want him, but I want control. You can't have both, friend. You got to make that choice because Jesus is holy. Secondly, Jesus is powerful. Jesus demonstrated that he is the Lord of the storm. Now, in Psalm 29, if you read that chapter, it's a great chapter. It shows the power of God. It talks about God, uh, the God of glory thundereth. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The Lord, voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The Lord sitteth upon the floods. Talks about the power of God. Jesus is saying, I am that God. Thunder may be powerful, but it has no power over me. The storms may be mighty, but they're not more mighty than me. Uh, Jesus has power over destruction. He has power over death. He has power over disorder. He doesn't only have power over the external uh, universe. He has power over the internal as well. It is I. Be not afraid. Jesus is telling us here when we have him, it does not matter how turbulent things are. It doesn't matter how stormy things are. He is the Lord of the storm. And if we have him in our boat, there's safety, peace, and security there. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is holy. And he wants to be your captain. Jesus wants to be your captain. The fact that Jesus is the Lord of the storm shows us his holiness and his power, but it also tells us that sometimes he'll put us through a storm. Now, the parallel passage for this is found in Mark chapter 6. We won't turn there, but we see very clearly there that Jesus knows they're going into a storm, and he sends them into that storm. If Christ is your Savior, there's going to be times when he is seemingly sending you into danger. Don't be afraid. He knows what he's doing. Notice, too, here how he deals with the storm. This is interesting. They're terrified. Just, they just seen him walk on the water. Of course, they're terrified. But notice what he does not say and what he does say. He does not say, hey, hey, guys, listen, I just pulled up the weather app, and this is going to be over in just a few minutes. Hey, listen, this isn't the worst storm you've ever been in. It's not that bad. Don't get all stressed out. You've had worse. It's a comforting thing, friend, that Jesus Christ will never minimize your storm. 
He'll never minimize what you're going through. What he does rather is maximize himself in your storm. It is I, be not afraid. Oh, if we could just learn not to get our eye on the storm all the time, the things that are bothering us, but put our eyes on Christ. He maximizes himself. He wanted them to see him as the I am. And that's how you deal with the storm, my friend. Yes, it's bad. Yes, it's painful. But you don't have to minimize it. If you are a child of God, you have the Lord of the storm in your boat. And that way we can be uh, grateful to him. He loves you. Let him be the captain of your ship. Now, the problem is, in our life, as we, we know this, I mean, he's the captain of the ship. We know that he controls the storms. We often don't have a, a real problem recognizing that intellectually. But the problem is we get all kinds of idols that we take security in. What's an idol? Well, an idol is anything you trust more than God. Anything you put between you and God. An idol is a way for you to keep control of your life yourself, uh, to basically try to hold the reins. An idol is something you bow down to. You uh, Maybe not physically, but with all of your actions, you center your life on it. You get your meaning. You get your self-worth. You get your joy. You get your security out of it. And if I can make a comparison, since we're talking about ships and boats and such, if I can kind of make a comparison, think of your idols as life rafts. So you leave the ship and you get on a life raft. And the nice thing about life rafts is you can control a life raft. You're, you're, the, you're, you're the boss of the life raft. It's just a life raft. You can run that thing. And uh, if you're on a ship now, you have, are subject to the captain of that ship. You might have to serve on that ship. You might have to do some work on that ship. But the biggest thing is you're not in control on the ship. But you can be in control on your life raft. As human beings, we build lots of life rafts. And we get on these rafts. We put our security and our hope and, and we put our safety in things that we can control. It might be a career. It might be any money that we have or, or all those different things. We, we are on our life raft. I'm in control and I make the choices. But then what happens is Jesus sends storms into your life and he shows you the inadequacy of those life rafts. I'm talking about things that we build our lives on. And then what, those, what he forces us to do with that storm is he shows us how inadequate our life raft is and it drives us back to the ship where he is the captain. And that's what storms do. The book of Job Satan, you know the story, Satan comes to God, and he basically, I'm, not, I'm, not re, I'm just rephrasing it, but he basically says, look at Job, God. Uh, Satan says, he's your, you say he's your servant, I say he's using you. Look what he says exactly, Job 1.9, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. He's not serving you, God. He's using you. you. He's using you to serve him. Look how wealthy he is. Look how happy he is. He's popular. He's got everything he wants. Why wouldn't he serve you, God? You get rid of those things, God, and you'll see he'll curse you to your face. And basically, he's, he's claiming to God that all Job's things that he has is the boat that's holding him up in the water of life. 
what does God do? Send some storms. Send some bad storms into Job's life. He sends a storm that knocks down his house and kills his family. Sends a literal lightning storm that comes in and kills all of Job's livestock and destroys his wealth. Job loses everything in the matter of a day. And he struggles. There's a, Job's a long book. He goes through some struggles in the beginning. But in the end, Job climbs aboard the Lord's ship, if you will. And he says, Lord, you are what I'll live for. Your word is what I'll cling to. Your riches is what shall sustain me. As a result, he became a better child of God because he climbed aboard something that couldn't sink. You also can look at the parable of the two men that, or the men that built two houses. Jesus talks about a house that's built on sand and a house that's built on the rock. And the thing is about these houses, they both look great. I mean, you can see them and... I mean, if you're walking by or driving by and you see these two houses, they're great. They're, everything looks good. But the problem is one sits on a very shaky foundation. One of them sits on a firm foundation. One of them sits on a shaky foundation. And that could be applied to all of us. In fact, that parable is given for that purpose, realizing that we can build our lives on something that's really shaky, or we can build our lives on the rock. Now, pray tell, how do you find out how solid your foundation is in that parable? A storm. He sends a storm. And when the storm hits, one house falls and one house stands firm. A storm comes and one of them will fall and the other will not. Listen, friend, if you build your life on beauty, it will be the storm of aging. If you build your life on a career, there's the storm of recession or competition. If you build your life on human love, there's the storm of rejection. If you build your life on money, there's a storm of insolvency. If you build your life on health, there's a storm of a disease. And we could go on and on, but you get the point. We cannot build our lives on the shaky, soft sand of what the world has to offer because the storm comes and our house will fall every time. We've got to build our lives on Christ. Those storms that come into your life show you your foundation. They often show you your life raft. And you find, I've been putting my faith and my trust in something that can pass away in no time. Those storms will tell you that. Your storms tell you what you're really relying on to hold you up. Jesus doesn't send you storms into your life or send you into a storm to destroy you. He wants you to be a more stable and better Christian. He doesn't want you to be tossed to and fro by uh, every wind. He, he says, then climb onto my boat. Now, here's the problem. You climb onto God's boat, you're not in charge. He's the captain. Let him be the captain. Amen? There's safety in that. There's security in that. Everyone can be a captain of their own life raft. But you come to me, let me be your captain, he says. Only then do you find peace and safety. Build your life on Christ. Make him your God. He is the great I am. One purpose in our storms is for us to see he's God and no one else. He is the one that's in control. That's how he helped his disciples here deal with the storm they were in. And that's how he'll help you deal with your storm. It's interesting to me as I read the New Testament 
that uh, God does handle every storm differently. You know, there, were, there was another storm the disciples were in, in Mark chapter 4. Remember the story, Jesus was sleeping on the bottom of the boat, and uh, there was a storm that came up, and the disciples got all panicky, and, and they finally come to him, are you going to sleep while we die? And they, Jesus gets up, remember what Jesus says, peace, be still. And everything just, whew. can you imagine that scene? Man, have you ever been in a storm out on the water too? And then just everything calms. In, uh, in the Greek, Jesus said his literal words were, oh, for crying out loud, hush. That's what his literal words were. Peace be still. And then he was still. But, but you see, in that storm, and sometimes Jesus does that. Sometimes we cry out to him and he says, peace. And he, and he stills the storm. Sometimes he does that. But he didn't do that in today's text. Today he just showed his disciples he's above the storm. And here's something really cool. It doesn't talk about it in our text today, but in the parallel passage of Mark chapter 6, we see that uh, Jesus is walking up to the water. You remember, one of the disciples said, Hey, Jesus, if that's you, bid me come to you. And Peter, rambunctious, loudmouth Peter, Jesus said, Come on. And he did. He stepped out. And as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, here's a great thing. The power to overcome the storm transferred from the Lord to Peter as long as his eyes were on Christ. Amen? That'll make, a, that'll make an Episcopalian say amen right there, won't it? What a blessing. The power to overcome our storms. Sometimes Jesus gets rid of them. Other times he says, I'm giving you the ability to meet the storm. I'll show you how to walk through that storm I'll show you how to walk over that storm. Just trust the captain of your ship. Sometimes you're calm and he brings fear into your life. Sometimes you're filled with fear and he brings calm into your life. He knows what he is doing. He is holy. He is powerful. He wants to be your captain. He wants to make you realize the futility of earthly dependency. Nothing, nothing, my friends, satisfies like the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it takes a storm for us to realize just that. Get rid of the life rafts in our life. You see, there is purpose in our suffering. Jesus came and he suffered, not that we might not suffer, but that when we do suffer, we can become more like him. You see, God had one son without sin, but he had no son without suffering. Everyone suffers. We all have these things that we go through. And Jesus Christ suffered and died to pay for your sins and mine. Uh, He gave his life willingly to be our substitute on the cross for our sins. Oh, dear friend, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, may I encourage you, don't go through life wondering, hoping, maybe I'll go to heaven. I hope I'll go to heaven. I hope I'll be good enough. None of that. The Bible says that these things are written unto you that that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. I remember the day that I went from a hope-so to a no-so salvation. What a great day that was. It changes our focus when we recognize what Jesus Christ did for us. With Christ in your vessel, you can smile at the storm. Not any other way. Every other life raft we build for ourselves will be proven by those storms to be inadequate and will be frustrated, will be filled with fear, filled with all kinds of things, depression and discouragement and defeat. Get into the ship where he is the captain. 
Let him be your captain. And through his power and his holiness, you can smile at the storm. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know, friend, what you're going through today. I presume that because the Lord...